Two weeks ago when I spoke, I started off my sermon by joking that uh, we had moved past all of the easy stuff and we're moving on to the really hard stuff. As is so often the case, you guys just didn't get my humor and I kind of just had to move on and forget that. Sure, there might have been a few smiles behind the masks, but I couldn't see them anyways. And maybe some of you at home laughed out loud, but obviously I wouldn't even have known it. And so it's a lonely place to be up here when you crack a joke and nobody acknowledges it. <clears throat> but maybe I'm just not that funny. See? There you go. Um, but really, up until that point in the Sermon on the Mount, it was moving from the third message to the fourth message, and we had covered issues such as murder and adultery and divorce. Those weren't easy subjects. But the Sermon on the Mount didn't get any easier. And two weeks ago, we looked at what it would mean to be a person of integrity who always speaks the truth. And last week, Pastor Adam walked us through the passage, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. And we were challenged to be people who practice a radical, nonviolent resistance to oppression and uh, injustice and greed. And today we come to the last of the six uh, passages that are known as antithesis teachings in the section of the Sermon on the Mount. And so in each of the first five, we've seen Jesus contrast traditional interpretation of Old Testament texts and themes with his understanding of, <clears throat> and the, uh, of a new meaning or of their meaning and then an application. And we've really tried to focus on these applications. We've referred to them as acts of righteousness or acts of deliverance, um, often using the, the, the phrase transforming initiative, <clears throat> something that we can initiate that helps in the process of transformation because we are all in the process of being transformed. None of us are complete. None of us are perfect. Paul writes and says, for he who started a good work in you is going to be faithful to complete it. And, and, and that's on that last day. Um, until then, we're all a work in progress. But, but there are things that we can intentionally do to help us as, as God is doing this work of transformation in us. And there's practices that we can engage in. And so today, I want to share with you what I believe is a pretty simple truth, um, but not at all easy to practice. So first, let's look at what I'm calling a twisted truth. Verse 43 you have heard that it was said, love your enemy and hate your enemy. Sorry, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. I'm off to a great start. <clears throat> Bad time to have to clear your throat during COVID. It just makes everybody nervous, I know. But when some of you read this, you're like, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. It's like, yes, now that's something that I can do. <clears throat> Finally, something I can wrap my hands around. <clears throat> Sorry to burst your bubble, because this is, in fact, what I'm calling a twisted truth. It's a perversion of the Old Testament law. And once again, we see how the rabbis took an Old Testament passage. Maybe they took some ideas from some other commands, and they came up with the teaching that served their purposes. They defended it, in fact, as a legitimate interpretation. And they did this for one reason and one reason only, to suit themselves, <clears throat> to make it convenient to live out and obey. <clears throat> wow, this is going to be hard. And, uh, um, and just 
just to, to make it easy to obey so that they could demonstrate how righteous they were. Look at I can do this because who said, well, yeah, sure, I can love my neighbor and hate my enemy because there's lots of enemies around. They were under Roman occupation. And so the Jewish people would have seen um, the, the Romans as, as, um, as, as their enemies. And so they thought, this is great for us. Now, Leviticus 19, verse 18, uh, expresses this truth as it really should be understood. And there we read in verse 18, Do not take revenge or bear a grudge against members of your community, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Now, do you already see what the Pharisees did? The, the love your neighbor part is there, but they even twisted that slightly by dropping the as yourself. And when you stop and think about it, those two words make a huge difference because they really qualify our love for our neighbors. They, in essence, set a standard, right? So love your neighbor, how? As yourself. And most of us don't have a lot of difficulty loving ourselves. You may recall Jesus answering the question from one of the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 22, which is the greatest commandment in the law? In verse 37, he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. And then he quickly adds, and the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. And when Jesus was answering that question, he actually was accurately quoting Deuteronomy 6, verse 5, love the Lord your God, and Leviticus 19, 18 that we just are looking at. But not only did the Pharisees drop the as yourself, they then added themselves, hate your enemy. They just made it up because it isn't found anywhere in the Old Testament. Now, they might have inferred some of this hate from some of the other commands, but there's nothing directly that says, hate your enemy. I, uh, I find that um, I probably reference social media too often, and, uh, but I think there's good reason for that, because I think we have to be really, really careful about being potentially formed by social media instead of being formed uh, by Christ. Um, but on social media, you often get the sense that people not only hate their enemies, sometimes they even hate their neighbors. And um, there's often you'll find just grievances being aired in public. And, and, and then everybody finds, you know, there, there's, just, there's this outrage and, and everybody starts taking shots. And some people take shots on the, at, the, at, the, um, at the person making the original post. And then other people come back and, and start shooting the people that are shooting. The, the, and it, it just gets ugly and messy. And I'm often very shocked by some of the anger and the escalation of neighborly issues, Right? If you're in Twilliger community page, it's always about dog poop, okay? Um, it, it, not always, but that seems to be a big, big issue. 
Now, there's, a, there's a, another kind of social media app, but it has a different focus, and it's just called Nextdoor. And I'd actually encourage you to do it because the intention behind it, it's something that the city of Edmonton actually really promotes, and the intention is so that you get to know your neighbors and the people around you, and you kind of sign up by geographic area, and you can get notifications just for that area. And the intent is that you would be there to help one another out and warn people and share information. There's really no pictures. It's not like Facebook and, and, uh, and all this going back and forth kind of thing. But it can be really helpful. And it was interesting, last night I looked at it, I got an actual an email notification for one of these things. And so I went and looked at it, and it was a nasty, spiteful, vengeful post. I was shocked. Like, this was so over the top that I'm like, I, I don't think I can even share that in public. And, and then um, I noticed that somebody liked it. And I thought, well, that's kind of weird. And I looked, it was actually the original poster who liked her own post. And, and then I looked this morning and it was gone because somebody probably got to it. Uh, but I read one one time, um, and the internet will help you find these kind of things. And, and it, let's say it was Cindy who made a post that said, wind chimes disturbing the peace. And this is what she wrote. Neighbors, please be considerate of your fellow neighbors and do not hang up wind chimes. No one wants to listen to your wind chime chiming all hours of the night and every time the wind blows. Many people work different shifts and may enjoy sleeping with windows open or enjoy listening to the birds, not a banging wind chime. Now this kind of resonated with me because we actually have had a wind chime before. Anyone else want to admit that foolishness? Okay. And, and I remember one time I'm sitting in my own house and I'm annoyed at the sound of the wind chime. And so I said, Tina, we, we got to take that down. That, that just would be annoying. It's annoying to me. It's probably annoying to our neighbors. Let's just take it down. But listen to the response that this person goes. This, this was one of the responses. I never comment on this site. So in other words, I am so outraged by this. Nothing else before has bothered me. I have never commented. But I have to say, this must be the dumbest thing I've ever seen in print. I also noticed something else, Cindy. I noticed that in every thread, you always comment that you work different shifts. If you work at all, how do you have so much time to be in everyone's business? I don't own a wind chime. Listen, but if I live next door to you, I would buy a hundred of them. Life is too short to complain about the pleasant noises that come from a wind chime. Do you hate butterflies and babies too? (laughs) So the saying goes, you can pick your friends, but you can't pick your neighbors. And the Pharisees twisted this truth to say, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. And Jesus commanded us to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. And in Luke chapter 10, when Jesus was asked by an expert in the law, who is my neighbor, Jesus responded by telling the parable of the Good Samaritan. And I don't have time to to get into that, but you probably know it fairly well. If you don't, just go to Luke 10 and read it. But basically, the answer to the question, who is my neighbor, is anyone who is in need. And what Jesus is saying here in this passage is that neighbor might even be our enemy. And so that brings us to a difficult truth. Verse 44, 
But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So Jesus opposes this traditional saying, this twisted truth with a clear command of his own that says, love your enemies. And the first thing I think we need to note is that Jesus assumes that we will have enemies. Maybe that's a shocker to you, um, but we shouldn't kind of get all warm and fuzzy about this just because we think we're such a nice person that we'll never have anybody that's an enemy. People may very well get upset with us, and we can't control that unless we have a wind chime. But what we can do, thank you for that, that, that feedback, but, but what we can do as Jesus commands us is to love our enemies. That's it. Now you talk about a radical teaching, right? Does it get harder than this? Love your enemies? I mean, the twisted truth of the Pharisees, now that we might be able to accept, love your, en- like, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. That's, that that kind of lines. But now, Jesus is saying, love your enemies? And so Jesus is responding to this twisted truth that had been circulating, and instead he prescribes this proactive, positive action. And it may not sit well with us, but it is a command nonetheless but no doubt a difficult one at that. And Jesus even goes so far as to explain that when, as followers of his, we love our enemies, we're actually confirming that we are God's children. Because he adds in verse 45, he says, you know, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you in verse 44, and then adds, so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. And what do we know about the Father's love? His love is indiscriminate. His love is inclusive. It is shown equally to good and evil, because that's what he continues in verse 45. He says, for he, he's referring to God the Father, causes his son to rise on the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. And Jesus says that God gives sunshine and rain to both the righteous and the unrighteous. In other words, to both his friends and even to his enemies. And theologians refer to this as common grace, or grace that is shown to all of humanity, that he doesn't distinguish between whom will get the sun and whom will get the rain. And the invitation is then to participate as God's children in what he's doing. And so God loves everyone, and we should as well, that we should love like God, that there's a a family resemblance in, in our actions. Some of you may remember <clears throat> the Boston Marathon bombings. This happened in April of 2013. There were two brothers who made two homemade pressure cooker bombs, and they detonated them 14 seconds apart and 210 uh, yards apart near the finish line of the Boston Marathon on that day. And when these bombs went off, it killed three people, injured hundreds of others, including 17 who ended up having to lose limbs because of uh, the significant damage that was done. Uh, If you don't remember that, maybe you've seen the movie Patriot's Day, which takes you back to those events. But eventually, these two suspects then, because there's a, a manhunt on them, they killed a policeman. They they kidnapped a man in his car. They had a shootout with the police during which two officers were then severely injured, one of whom died a year later. 
And one of the suspects, his name was Tamerlan Sanerev, he was shot several times, and then his brother actually ran over him accidentally when he was escaping in the stolen car. And so Tamerlan died soon after this. The problem was that no cemetery was willing to allow Tamerlan's body to be buried due to the widespread protest. No one wanted his body buried in their town. Enter Martha Mullen, a Christian, who felt a conviction to respond and do something. And so Martha began researching and contacting Islamic funeral services, and she eventually located a Muslim cemetery in Virginia that would accept Tamerlan's body. And in an interview with National Public Radio, um, Martha was asked, she was a total stranger to the Sonera family, why she chose to get involved at all, especially given the risk that she herself might be targeted by some of the angry protesters, because everybody was so angry and disgusted at their actions. And this is how Martha answered the question. It made me think of Jesus' words, love your enemies. I felt that Tamerlan was being maligned probably because he was Muslim, And Jesus tells us to, in the parable of the Good Samaritan, love your neighbor as yourself. And your neighbor is not just someone who you get along with, but someone who is alien to you. If I'm going to live my faith, then I'm going to do that which is uncomfortable and not necessarily what's comfortable. I feel like it was the right thing, and it's important to be true to the principles of your faith. Friends, that's what Jesus is getting at here when he says, love your enemies. Because even our enemies have needs, and we love them, and they are our neighbors as well. So how do we do this? How do we love our enemies? So let's go then to a truth to live by. And the easiest thing would be for us to love people who are like us, right? To love the people in our little circles. In short, to love the people who love us. And there Jesus challenges us again. Verse 46 says, For if you love those who love you, what reward will you have? Don't even the tax collectors do the same? Burn. Jesus dropped the mic on that one. Because he's now challenging them and saying, you're no different than the tax collectors. The tax collectors had a reputation for being greedy. They had the moral equivalent of being a sinner. And and Jesus just says, he goes, well, they love the people who love them. And so if you do the same, you're no better. There's no difference. And in verse 47, he keeps, keeps putting on the pressure. He says, if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what are you doing out of the ordinary? Don't even the Gentiles do that? Sam read from the NIV, it said the word pagan. But Jesus is speaking here to a Jewish audience, and to them, the the Gentiles were, were, were despised people. And yet, he says, these pagans, these unbelievers, they they greet one another. They greet the people that they love. And so if you only greet the people you love, again, you're no better. And back in verse 20 of chapter 5 in Matthew, Jesus said this. He says, For I tell you, 
that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, he will certain, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. So it's this surpassing righteousness. And so if we only love those people who love us, our righteousness does not surpass. It's no better, he says, than the tax collectors and the Gentiles or the pagans. And furthermore, if that's true, he says, you can't even expect a reward from God. So just get over it, he says. And I don't know about you, and I can't speak for you, but that makes me uncomfortable. Because I know in my own life, it's very easy to love the people that love me. It's so easy to love our brothers and, and sisters. But really what Jesus is saying, there's nothing extraordinary about that. It's just the ordinary, easy thing to do. And that's why that question, right in the middle of that verse, what are you doing out of the ordinary? What are you doing more? And one of the things that we probably get hung up on here about this idea of loving our neighbors is the very idea of love itself. And if we define love as an emotion or a feeling, then we can have a really hard time with this because we think, well, I'm not going to have any of those kind of feelings towards an enemy. But if we understand love to be more than an attitude or a feeling, that it is in fact an action that we take, it might help us to wrap our minds around this a little. Because when we love someone, what we are first and foremost looking for was that we can take action and meet the needs of another person. Martha Mullen probably didn't feel love for Tamerlan, but she saw a basic need to to show dignity to a human being that everyone else was trying to avoid, and so she took action. Our responsibility, Jesus says, is simply to love. Friend, neighbor, or even enemy, it doesn't matter. And we know the need, um, when, when, when we know the need of another person and we're in a position to do something about it, then it falls to us to take action. And it might be out of the ordinary because normal is only to care for ourselves because we are infected with self-interest like everyone else. And so let me just give you a few really practical how-tos as we try to wrap this up here. Luke's gospel also captures Jesus' teaching here on the mountainside. And so reading it alongside Matthew's gospel, we can come up with three things that we can do for our enemies. And Jesus touches on some of them here. But the first is simply this. When we're loving our neighbors, serve them. It's so basic. Luke 6, 27 says, Do good to those who hate you. Do good to them. You have an enemy to love them? Do good to them. And it's probably the most basic thing that we can do. When we know of a specific need, we meet it. And we find that practical, humble, sacrificial ways to serve our neighbors, as we already heard about in the kids' spotlight this morning. That's how we love them. And sometimes you hear about actual physical neighbors, and they they end up in some 
relatively minor dispute, and it just takes up a life of its own, and, and, and there's, there's conflict in the neighborhood and the street, and people are picking sides, and, and it's everything from parking on the wrong side, parking in front of my driveway, shared property lines, you know, leaves from your tree blowing into my yard, and I have to clean them up, or there isn't, you know, in some of these smaller cul-de-sacs, there isn't enough snow sometimes to pile our snow between, and, and so um, we get upset with that, or they don't take care of their yard, or there's loud music, or they have wind chimes. But instead of assuming the worst, what if there were legitimate reasons? Maybe they're not able to look after the yard because they have an elderly parent that requires care, and they just don't have time for their yard. Or maybe they're going through a personal health crisis, but, but we never even bother to ask if there's a way that we could help. You see, there are so many acts of kindness that we can do in our neighborhoods. And it's great when we have a great relationship with our neighbor, but if you have someone that really upsets you, I want to encourage you to just try this. Serve them. Shovel their sidewalk and their driveway before they get up to leave in the morning. Feed them. Take them a meal. Do something so practical that, that is just a simple act of kindness. And watch what God does in our hearts. Because when we assume a different posture, when we assume the position of a servant, because that's what servants do, they serve, instead of an adversary, just think about what might happen. Secondly, encourage them. Luke 6, 28a says, bless those who curse you. And so maybe there's a person who actually does want to harm you. They, they, they curse you. Uh, I'm thinking about maybe um, some of you who play hockey or play sports, and it's getting rough, and, 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 and you can kind of, you know, words are being said that nobody else can hear, and, 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 and this guy is always coming back at you, and he's always looking at, to take you down when the referee isn't looking. And, and so what do you do? Well, you find opportunities, I think, that just to turn around and bless them encourage them. You see, serving them, as I said at the beginning, will already be an encouragement, and they'll wonder what's going on. But then if we return blessing for curses, think about that. They curse you, you bless them. You greet them. And thirdly, you pray for them. <clears throat> Luke 6, 28b, <clears throat> pray for those who mistreat you. And so, are you being persecuted or mistreated? Our response is to pray. And never understand or never misunderstand or underestimate the impact of praying for someone. Because it simply increases our love. It changes our perspective and our attitude. Um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer said this, he says, this is the supreme command referring to love your enemies. He says, through the medium of prayer, we go to our enemy, stand by his side, and plead for him to God. John Stott said something similar. He says, it is impossible to pray for someone without loving him. And impossible to go on praying for him without discovering that our love for him grows and matures. <clears throat> this is what Jesus did when he was being crucified. In fact, the imperfect tense that is used there suggests that he kept praying. He kept repeating this prayer. You know what it was? Father, forgive them. They do not know what they are doing. 
And if that's what Jesus would do, what's keeping us from serving, encouraging, and praying for our enemies? Now, just a thought. Sometimes the most loving thing we can do for our enemies is to set boundaries. This is not thinking about last week's message, kind of rolling over and being a doormat for someone's abuse. It's okay to stand your ground, this nonviolent resistance that we looked at last week. And that act can, in fact, be expressing your love for them. Now, not convinced of this, Jesus often confronted the Pharisees. He didn't affirm everything they did, and he often stood his ground against them. That, friends, is still a loving action. And so let me just share this in closing, a summary truth. Because in verse 48, there is what I think is just a summary truth. And it's this, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. (sighs) What do we do with that? As if this wasn't already hard enough. Love your enemies. Now you're telling me to be perfect like my heavenly Father is perfect. And as I studied this, there are really two ways of interpreting this verse and applying it. And I'm going to just give you a quick summary of both because I think both are valid and both really bring us to the same conclusion. But one, some scholars will say that it's really a summary statement of Jesus' command to love your enemies. It's verses 43 to 48, and that's what we're looking at this morning. So in terms of loving your enemies, he says, be perfect. And we know that God loves everyone. We just saw how Jesus says that God doesn't distinguish between good and evil and the just and the unjust when he sends sunshine and rain. That's just God's standard. And he says, now be like that. And it's the high ideal of perfect love, perfect in the sense of mature and complete Now, there's other expressions we can find in the Scripture of this very standard. Leviticus 19, verse 2, he says, Be holy because I, the Lord your God, am holy. Like, there's no way we're going to be as holy as God is, but he's saying, be holy. And Luke 6, 36, be merciful just as the Father is merciful. And the point is this, that we will never achieve perfection in this life, but that's the standard, and it's a high one at that. It's God's standard. Love that is whole and complete and all-inclusive. A love that includes our enemies. And that is how we, in fact, declare that we're God's children when we act like Him. So it can be a summary of this passage. And others actually say that it's a summary statement of everything that Jesus has been teaching from verse 20 on. I already referred to verse 20, where there we talked about a righteousness that Jesus says that we need to surpass or exceed. And since that point, <clears throat> he's given us these six comparisons in the intervening verses. <clears throat> and we've heard Jesus say, you've heard that it was said, but I say to you six times now. And Jesus here is setting a very high bar with respect to anger and lust and vows and nonviolent resistance, loving your enemies. And if that wasn't hard enough, he drops the hammer here and says, be perfect. And we protest. We say, be perfect? I I can't do that. I I, I can't love my enemies perfectly. I I, I can't not have anger at times. I, I can't do this perfectly. There's no way, God. This is hard and impossible. And he goes, right. You can't do it on your own. And it takes us right back to the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes that we thought it was just an introduction. 
But those are the kind of character people that God is calling to live a certain way. People who are poor in spirit, who recognize how hopeless they are at trying to be perfect or to having this perfect righteousness. They're defeated. And, and, and they mourn that we can't do it. And they're humbled. And they hunger and thirst after righteousness. See, nobody but God is righteous. And Jesus gives to each of us who put our faith in him his righteousness. We are made perfect because of Jesus. And when we put our faith and our trust in Jesus, where we go, this is not my effort. I can't achieve perfection on my own. I can't, no matter how hard I work. Romans 5.10 describes for us how God has treated each of us. He says this, For if, while we were God's enemies, think about that, God viewed us as his enemies, we were reconciled to him, how? Through the death of his son. Now how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Friends, what all of these six messages have meant to us is that we cannot live the Christian life on our own. This isn't a self-help program. But at the same time, there are some really practical things that we can set our minds to and to do. And so what we have here really is a simple, straightforward truth. Love your enemies. Serve them. Encourage them. Pray for them. Those are things that we can choose to do, and it's a matter of obedience. But we know it's not easy. In fact, without God's help, it's impossible. And so we just need to realize the deep need for God to help us live the life. Let's pray. Father, I pray that as we think about your word today, the challenge that it presents to us, the, the, just the radical nature of enemy love, who would have thought? But Father, I pray that as we broke this down today and made our way through these verses, that there was a, on one hand a sense that, you know what, I, I can do that. I, I, I can work out my salvation. But I know that ultimately salvation is a gift that you've given to us. And so again, we come to that place where we are falling under that dependent discipline where we depend on you to give us what we cannot do for ourselves but that we do take action where we see a need whether it's our neighbor that we love and our enemy that we now know that we should love as well that we will take action and, and do the right thing so God help us Help us to draw close to you because we know that we can't do this in our own strength. But at the same time, Lord, help us, prevent us from just throwing up our hands and defeat and thinking that there's nothing that we can do. So help us walk out that tension in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.